0: Welcome to In Season, where we explore the connections between people, plants, wildlife, and land here in the lower Columbia Pacific region. I'm Teresa Retzloff, and today I'm so excited to have this conversation. Um, We're talking about a very specific plant. It's not a native plant, but it's not an invasive. You won't find it at a farmer's market, um, but it is edible. It's not something that's very common, but you're hearing more and more about it. And it's a really cool plant and I'm just getting introduced to it. I'm really excited about it. And I'm talking today with Britt Bowles of Sea Spell Fiber and the plant we're talking about is indigo. Welcome Britt.
1: Thanks so much for
0: having me, Teresa, it's an honor. It is so fun to be talking to you. And this is such a fascinating plant. I mean, I've been hearing the word indigo swirling around the kind of local food, local flowers, local something world for a while now as the like natural dye, plant dye, community has kind of also risen to the surface and coming out of this whole interest in You know, finding alternative ways to um, use plants and explore different ways of doing things in maybe a slightly less harmful to the environment kind of way. And, um, but you and I connected last winter at a winter market, and you were across the way from my booth, and I was just fascinated with the things you were selling, and I walked over and we were chatting, and you had these little vials of seeds. And you're like, these are indigo seeds. And I love meeting new plants. So I was like, okay, well, I'll try it. You say it's not invasive, it's not too hard to grow. Cool, I'll give it a try. And I started growing it this year. And then this, this conversation has happened. And you came out and you harvested some and you showed me some of the cool things that it does and talked to me about it. And I've just been blown away. So I feel like I'm late to the party, but like, tell me about yourself and what you do and how did you get connected to this plant?
1: You know, first I'll say that indigo does that. It just kind of sneaks up on you and just like whisks you off your feet. It's very romantic that way. <laughs> it's very, I think, no one goes looking for it, but the right people find it in that I didn't go looking for it either. Um, I didn't know, I didn't think I even knew what I could, could look for, to be honest. Um, the way that I found indigo was through another artist in California. They were using natural indigo pigment in the dyeing of their textiles. Um, and this artist is Rachel Bledgett of Serpent and Bow. And I came across them talking about using natural indigo. And I knew indigo was a color on the spectrum, but I never thought about what it actually was. Like, where does it come from? Mm-hmm. And that was the blue Pandora box that opened for me, really. <laughs> I'm going, wait a minute, what do you mean natural? You know, what is it? Minerals? Is it a plant? Where are we getting this? Um, so I dove down just, uh, I think, really an internet rabbit hole of trying to figure out where, where could this come from? Um, and where, where could we possibly get it here locally? Um,
0: and what got, was anyone growing it in
1: Oregon? Well, I got really lucky. So kind of after finding some pigment online that was coming from afar, first, my first interaction with natural indigo was from plants coming from um, Guatemala and also India and Pakistan. So very far away shipping dry pigment um, from plants that don't grow here at all. I don't really like it here in the Pacific Northwest. They're indigo plants. They like it really hot. But during that kind of stepping stone series of digging more and more into the other plants that also give indigo, I found a local farmer on Savvy Island. Um, So Kara of Vibrant Valley Farm was growing this plant in her first year. And she was introduced to it by a man named Roland Ricketts out of Indiana who studied in Japan. And his wife is Japanese, she's a weaver. He's the dyer of a beautiful relationship. Uh, and he was really the person who made seeds accessible by growing large quantities and selling seeds to
0: folks here in the U.S. So the Japanese yeah. indigo is one that grows well in our area. I mean, yes. I, could, I could see that, I guess, in a sense, because yeah. Japan is a much more northern country right. in a lot of ways. It's not as hot and tropical as, yeah. as some of the other countries that you mentioned where indigo grows. And so are, mm-hmm. they, are they related as plants? Is it, is it like a family?
1: That's a good question so indigo isn't just one species or one family it is really essentially it is the potential for color that is present in many species in different families and that potential for color is called indican so it's a precursor chemical and you never see it in its state as blue you would walk past it. It's a green plant in yeah, every species.
0: Absolutely, the plants I'm growing, yeah. they're, they're green leaves, they're beautiful dark yeah. green, but I would never think that right. the colors are gonna come out of it that have come out of it.
1: Right, yeah, no one does. <laughs> so um, really what we've discovered is that this indican precursor chemical is present. So we call these collection of plants indigo-bearing plants. And they can come from the indigo fera legume pea family, they can come from the brassica cabbage family, they can come from the buckwheat knotweed family, which is what the Japanese indigo comes from, just not to be confused with Japanese knotweed, which is <laughs> japonica fallopia, totally different plant.
0: Um, so it's not what I'm growing on my farm. I just want to say this. Yeah. This is not, not I'm not growing not <laughs> there's, <weed.
1: laughs> there's a, there's a cross between common names and also what we, what we call Latin names or scientific names that can sometimes confuse people. Um, but if we examine those scientific names side by side, japonica fallopia and persicaria tinctoria, very different, two totally different things. One very invasive, the one you're growing on your farm is an annual frost sensitive, non-invasive plant. So we can take confidence in that. And people all over Asia have been growing this plant for millennia, Um, not just Japan, but China, Vietnam, Thailand, Korea, Laos, the Philippines. Um, I think that the direct line of seed actually came from a region in China and dispersed, um, kind of the plant dispersed from that central location is what my my Japanese teacher told me recently. Um, But most of the seeds coming to the US come from Japan. So we nicknamed, common named them Japanese indigo. So that's the story of the kind of the lineage of it. And so Roland Ricketts, just to cycle back to him, um, he got his seeds in Japan, bought them here, um, planted in Indiana, acres, does a really traditional Japanese method called Tsukumo, composting and drying his leaves, um, making a fermented vat that then dyes fiber that his wife weaves with. He was recently at the Seattle Art Museum doing a big exhibition, really beautiful. Um, You can find his work. And so he influenced Kara to start growing it through a project that was going on um, with um, the Oregon Museum of college, or sorry, the the Museum of Art and Craft, which is no longer, mm-hmm. but at the time they were doing a project, Roland was invited to come and present indigo and they really wanted people to see the source. They wanted them to see the connection to the actual plant, not just the dried pigment. So he was able to roundabouts find Kara's farm as the location to grow the indigo for that season. And as a farmer, she was really focused on farming <laughs> her her crops, her viable yeah. crops. But when she saw kind of the magic of it, right, Yeah, snuck up on her.
0: Well, I was, I mean, I'll confess, I was pretty indifferent to it. Yeah. I mean, it was like, oh, it's a plant. I'm curious about it. People keep talking about sure. it. Maybe someone's going to want to use some to dye some things. But then you came out that day. Yeah. I mean, you really are like a Pied Piper of this, of indigo in a sense. Because, I mean, I, I thought I was going to talk to you for maybe 10 minutes and then just go off and do my stuff. And you're like mashing up the leaves and showing me the, the pigment coming out. And I had a bee sting. And you're like, rub it on your bee sting. It's medicinal. Mm-hmm. Then you're making me taste a leaf. And it's like, eh, it doesn't taste like much, but it's edible and it didn't kill me.
1: Right. And, you know,
0: you're talking about making pesto with it and yeah. all these cool things. And And then just going into so much about how the plant does what it does. And how this oh. pigment comes out, and I just got really captivated and fascinated that this this kind of innocuous, nothing-looking little plant can do so much, yeah, yeah, and can make such amazing color come out of it. And this is, I mean, this is cool because it does seem like there's a, a resurging interest mm-hmm. in natural plant dyes for fabric and and thinking about that industry. And y- you mentioned before we started recording that. Um, You know, like, synthetic dyes are pretty heinous. Yeah. And, you know, what what was it that you said about, like, there are no factories in the United States that are allowed to do that anymore?
1: Yeah, we don't produce synthetic. We're not allowed to produce and dye synthetic cloth in the U.S. So having a synthetic dye studio of, of large volume and production, I will say, you know, there's definitely home dyers, or Mm -hmm. I would say craft dyers who are dying with synthetic fibers and you can, um, synthetic dyes and fibers, you can find that on Etsy. But um, when it comes to, you know, production industrial, we're not allowed to have those industries here because of the toxicity. And it's mainly, you know, the disposal, where does that wastewater go? Um, We don't have a way to treat it. And neither does anyone else. (laughs) But the truth is, it's just Shuffled to the side and, and the burden is put on to mostly company, um, I should say countries like India and Hong Kong, you know, that's where a lot of the clothing, the mass production of both the clothing themselves and the dyeing happens there. And that is why the rivers, you know, mm-hmm. the Ganges is different colors and it's killing the life, uh, the wildlife the habitat. Um, the people are getting sick. The workers, uh, so we know we're we're not unaware of the toxicity and the effects of synthetics. It's it's uh, I guess it comes down to greed, to mm-hmm. capitalism, to wanting the bottom line to stay low so that the profit margin can stay high. Yeah, and you know at what cost?
0: Yeah, I mean, and it's <clears throat> it is so interesting to see people questioning that and mm-hmm. starting to explore you know ways to to reconnect with natural dyeing and and the colors are different but yeah. they're beautiful they mm-hmm. are so beautiful and and the thing that i'm struck with with indigo is how vibrant a blue you can get from that, and and no. So so tell me too. So I, I want you to explain to people because there's yeah. there's like the fresh yes the fresh leaf thing that you showed me, which seemed really easy, and you're just like mashing them up with a little bit of salt and some water, and you're throwing some things in it, and you get a beautiful kind of aquamarine turquoisey kind of color out of it. But if you want that blue blue, mm-hmm. you have to do a little bit more.
1: You have to do a little bit more. <laughs> so tell us
0: about those processes and yeah. You know, and and what kind of colors you can get out of them.
1: I think that's what's so fascinating and the more you kind of poke and prod and dig deeper into indigo is it is multifaceted and it doesn't just give blue. I like to say indigo's only lesson isn't blue. It has a lot of different lessons for us beyond the medicinal and the edible. Just in the realm of color, I can get a rainbow of that turquoise sea glass, robin egg blue, all the way from sky to midnight. Um, some people call it the blue of nothingness, all the way to, you know, um, the blue of darkness. Yeah, and, it's um,
0: very, very dark.
1: And everything in between, right? There's a range, um, and I think of it a lot like music, because that's my background. It's got octaves. It's, mm-hmm. got, it's got the full keyboard range. Of blues in addition to purples and lilacs from indirubin, another chemical present in the plant. It's got flavonoid yellows, pinks, um, you know even tans and browns from the tannins. So it really there's a lot going on in this plant. We kind of hyper focus on the blue because historically that has a lot of significance. And maybe well, it's, a, want...
0: it's a color of great value because yeah. it was so rare. It was hard to find yeah. ways to dye things blue that would, were permanent. Sure. And so blue was a color that had value.
1: It had great value. And it, unfortunately, you know, with that value, coming back to greed, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, tied to human history. But that's, that's a reoccurring theme. We haven't mm-hmm. learned that lesson yet. Um, and so just to kind of to go backwards a little bit, how Indigo came to, um, you know, the U.S. It, it is not indigenous to this, this land. And actually the, the indigenous blues that we would have received would have been from minerals, would have been from the Vivianite, from the, the spruce cone, the mineral from the ground. Um, and then maybe a few other purpley blues from like salalberry, but maybe more fugitive and not as long-lasting as, say, the Vivianite would have been. So when this ca- plant came here, it came here in a very traumatic way, just like a lot of what happened with early U.S. history. Was a, Everything was happening really traumatically. So um, initially it was brought to the South as a cash crop. This is prior to cotton, prior to rice. Um, this was the main moneymaker. It actually influenced some states where slavery was illegal to reverse that decision to make slavery legal. They saw the money that could be made and they decided to loophole or change their stance on slavery so that they could become an indigo protection facility. This happened in Georgia. So South Carolina and the Sea Islands, um, those were kind of big epicenters for where this indigo production was happening, mostly in the mid and late 1700s.
0: And then was the pigment being shipped back to Europe for textile production? It was
1: definitely being shipped all over the world, but a lot of it was Europe, yeah, because indigo pigment that was produced there was called woad, and they were in another war with India and Bengal, and that's where we have the Muhammad. A lot of people don't know this, but Mohammed Gandhi's uprising, the peasant uprising, called Neil Bidro was about indigo. The indigo farmers weren't being allowed to grow food, they were being forced by the British colonies to grow indigo only, for money, for their benefit, for the king, the crown. And they said no, and we're not going to do that anymore. And that was, indigo. It was about indigo. <laughs> this is, a, this
0: has a complicated, this is a complicated, it's a very complicated plant.
1: Very, um, and you know, we can't blame it on the plant really at no, all. No, but it's interesting but yes. how
0: it's, it's, it's woven itself yes. into so many different stories through history yeah. because of the value of this color yeah. and how we as humans prize that color right. and then prize the plants that we can get it from.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So was it really just the the rise of synthetic dyeing that kind of killed off the indigo plant industry? Yeah. I mean,
1: up until,
0: um, so the, the to fast forward to
1: the, the synthetic era, that was the late 1800s is when a German scientist accidentally discovered how to make synthetic indigo, not on purpose, but it was like a forget actually what they were trying to make, but that became the
0: more important thing. (laughs) That happens sometimes Um, with chemistry. (laughs) Yeah, it was one
1: of the last, or maybe the last colors to be synthesized because it was so different and so tricky and people really didn't understand the science and chemistry quite yet of it, um, at least in terms of the color molecule conversions and all of that jazz. So yeah, late 1800s, the discovery we didn't really start incorporating it into mass production until like 1910, 1915. And then we have Levi's who in California was like, okay, we got to make this thick work where, what are we going to dye it with indigo? Like synthetic indigo was like a no brainer. There was still some crossover between having natural indigo available and synthetics. So there was probably some early, early Levi's that were dyed with natural and then as soon as the synthetic industry erupted, it was just like faster, easier, more consistent, cheaper. Yeah, That's the really, the bottom line is yeah. it was cheaper.
0: So this plant kind of fell out of favor from its mass production. All
1: natural dyes fell out of favor, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, we had synthesized every color by then and more and more evolutions of those colors and tints and ranges became Um, more available Kramer pigments in in Germany is a huge kind of initiator of a lot of different pigments. They hold a pigment library of both synthetics and naturals. Um, but yeah, basically when we start to go through, um, the war and we're talking like post-industrial revolution, now we're talking about, you know, the big, um, the big, uh, what do I want to call it, um, machine-operated lines. You know, like cars were starting to be mass-produced. Clothing was starting to be mass-produced. Food was mm-hmm. starting to be mass-produced, right? Everything was like, how can we get it onto conveyor belts? Mm-hmm. And sure, there's still some human interaction, but we want to make it as fast and as cheap and as quick as, you know, as quick as we
0: can. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, that's an interesting story right there. And I think yeah. there's been a lot of, you know, rethinking about the choices that we made and the consequences of some of those choices, Yeah, um, especially in how we connect with nature and the ecosystem that we depend on. Um, if, if you are just joining us here on In Season, I'm having a really fascinating conversation, largely about indigo, but about a lot of other things yeah. with Britt Bowles of Sea Spell Fiber. And i um, I I just want to, I mean, I don't want to run out of time before we talk a little bit about how this plant does what it does because it's so fascinating. So talk us through, you know, you you come out and you you cut a plant (laughs) and then you want it, maybe you want to do a fresh dye. What do you do? do?
1: Yeah, good question. So the fresh plant is, is simultaneously the easiest thing to work with and the most complicated. The six simple steps you can do with the fresh plant that anyone could do, a kid could do it. I mean, you've done this as a kid. You rip up some leaves and you get it juicy and then you add it to whatever you wanna dye, whether it's paper or fiber or whatever. That is literally the, the essence you of what can You just kind of mash happen. them together. Mm-hmm. You can mash those leaves right onto your hand and you'll start seeing that change happen. So, you know, there's a, there's a chemical conversion that's happening. A lot of it has to do with, you know, the elements Air, water, fire, heat from your hands, heat from the sun um, and per- in particular the plant has some sugars available. Um, when those sugars and that indican combine with oxygen we have this new reaction and that new reaction is kind of fleeting so we kind of need to work with it immediately. So as I'm mashing those leaves I'm kind of sticking that fiber in right away And I'm capturing that. And it is a physical bond that happens with the fiber and the the dye. Um,
0: So it doesn't wash out.
1: And it doesn't wash out because indigo actually gets trapped in chains in these little strings. And it actually gets, you can almost think of it as like woven into a part of the fiber. And as it breathes air, and oxidizes, it's kind of, as it's sitting there, it's like a mood ring, it's changing <laughs> as we speak. Um, it forms insoluble indigo tin. And insoluble indigo. indigo is not soluble in water. So if you put it in water, if you just put the pigment in water, it just will kind of sink down to the bottom. So if you put a dyed piece of indigo fiber in water, right? It's not, not gonna soluble.
0: That's really yeah. cool. It's, it's, it just was so cool and so magical to watch that <laughs> yeah. happen. I mean, I kind of believed that it was going to happen because yeah. you told me, right. but then when you're actually <laughs> watching it happen, you're like, oh, that is so cool. Yeah. It was so fascinating. And it was just like mushed up fresh leaves. Just mushed up fresh leaves. And of course, volume makes a difference. Fiber type makes a
1: difference. There's, there's, there's these variables the time mm-hmm. in which you pick it during the season, towards the end of the season, it starts to wane in content. But that is, in its essence, its mm-hmm. easiest form. And then as we get more and more complicated, we can say, okay, that's like you mentioned, you know, the color is not what you're expecting from fresh necessarily, because we think of indigo as this dark, deep blue color on the spectrum in between blue and purple, right? It's that purplish blue. Um, And it's usually thought of as rather dark. So if you're just using fresh leaves, you're not going to get this concentrated experience. And we talked about this earlier, but you need a lot of leaves. You need a lot of poundage of leaves to get a little bit of pigment and to extract that pigment and make what we call a more concentrated vat experience where we can take big yardage, you know, larger fibers and dye them varying shades of medium to Deep, deep, dark blue. Um, we have to go through another another chemical process. First, it's a fermentation. Um, then we add a flocculant. We aerate it. We decant and settle our pigment. We strain it. Then we make a vat with it. It's it is quite labor intensive, but the process is so magical. It really is, and it is. Um, so rewarding I think to to get blue pigment from a green plant that getting there the process is what becomes the most enjoyable part at least for me now at this stage the, yeah the blue cloth is incidental the process of the relationship of the plant growing it interacting with it understanding it constantly learning from it um, and then getting to that blue stage is very rewarding but it's also like I, I've have seen so much. My mind has changed. My perspective has changed. My connection to source has changed. I'm a different person now.
0: <laughs> That's so cool. And and this is an international community that you're yeah. you're connected to now, mm-hmm. of people all over the world that are rediscovering natural dyeing and learning from each other, not just indigo, but lots of other plants. Um, Before we finish, because I I just am looking at the time and thinking, ah, we could be talking for like three more hours about this. (laughs) But there's many ways people can connect and learn about this. And you have some amazing resources online, you teach workshops, just your your social media alone has lots of resources and and stuff like that. So so tell people a little bit about how they can connect to you and some of the things that throughout the year you do where they could maybe do some hands-on or learn from you.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm really grateful for the community. It's where I've really learned everything. People are very generous in this community, and um, I found a lot of that information online, truthfully. It's been on social media, through the Facebook group that I admin, which is called Indigo Pigment Extraction Methods. Anyone can join it. It's free to join. Just search Indigo Pigment Extraction Methods. It's growers from all over the world sharing their experiences with every indigo-bearing plant. There's an interview series there called Blue Biographies, where I interview 39 Growers with their stories. On my Instagram, it's Sea Spell Fiber, like the ocean, S E A, Sea C Spell Fiber. Um, and then I also partner with another local artist that I know you know, Iris Sullivan Dare. Um, she's Dreambird Studio, but together we are Indigo.Fest, IndigoFest.org. Every August, we host an annual event a retreat over at South Wester. So we're getting ready for that. And we always have opportunities to interact with the community during the growing season, whether it's maybe out at a farm locally, um, growing starts, mm-hmm. um, sharing seeds, harvesting together. Um, I also work with Vibrant Valley Farm on Savi Island um, and then also dyeing some local fibers with Shift Wheeler, you may have seen some of their garments with the natural dyes. So I'm really always interested in connecting and collaborating with other farmers, other artists.
0: That's my favorite. It's it's so amazing. It, like you said, it's, it is a, a rabbit hole that you can fall down. Yeah. And I'm trying really hard not to fall down it because I don't have time. But I but I'm <laughs> it's like I'm really curious and and I'm so excited that you introduced me to this plant. Yeah. I, I was kind of indifferent to it, I confess, but now I'm like, oh, this is a really plant so it loves where you live I it's happy to be with you (laughs) well I am I'm happy to know it and and please if uh, for people who are listening if you're curious and you want to learn more about natural dyeing and any of this connect with some of these resources that Britt's put out there um, or just start doing some searching on your own there's so much out Mm -hmm. there I know there's other people in the community that are working with natural dyeing and there's a lot to explore there's so many plants yeah and it's a wonderful way to connect with nature. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. just it magical. Is. It really is. Britt, this has been um, too short, um, <laughs> but so great. Yeah. It's, it's just great. And thank you so much. And thanks, everyone, for listening today. And um, we'll talk to you next time.